Well, we're learning what God's will is in Philippians chapter 4, so I'll invite you to open your Bibles there, Philippians chapter 4. And we're specifically looking at verses 8 and 9. Do you have any bad habits, things that you wish that you didn't do? I saw an article this past week that was titled, 283 Bad Habits, The Definitive List. I didn't even know that there were that many bad habits out there. I mean, it contained natural things like the bad habit of being more than five minutes late or biting your nails, cleaning your teeth in public. You're sitting in a restaurant and watch somebody take the, you know, whatever it is, and they're cleaning their teeth, procrastinating, smoking, I mean, the, the normal things that you would expect on the list. While we normally think of, when we hear the word habit, we think of bad habits, Did you know that habits can also be good? A habit is something that you do over and over for an extended period of time where the same result or same response becomes almost instinctual. I mean, if you were raised to make your bed whenever you got up in the morning uh, and you did that as a child, you probably still have that habit this morning, man. If you got in the habit of throwing your clothes on the floor, your wife or husband is probably aware this morning that you still have that habit, right? Well, the Bible says that we, we also have spiritual habits that can be godly patterns of our new life, or they can be unspiritual habits, which is a remnant of our, of our old nature. Spiritual habits are... Are, are all of those godly things that are informed by, by the scriptures that you put into practice so long and so often, they become almost as natural as the sin that you once committed be, before Christ. And as you can imagine, unspiritual habits are just the opposite. They are a response to the sinful impulses, uh, impulses of our flesh. Uh, for instance, if if you have the habit of responding to irritations by blowing up or lashing out, then you, you do that over and over. The impulse that everyone has is exactly the same. I get irritated because the kids are you know, yelling or whatever else. That, that selfish response of, I want peace, comes in everybody's heart. How you respond to that, you can get used to responding to the, the same thing over and over, and you can develop a, an unspiritual habit. Well, the good news is spiritual habits can be continued or changed, if they're unspiritual, the same way they're ingrained to begin with. You don't overcome sinful patterns by mouthing words of confession, however sincere they may be. A new pattern must be developed, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and practiced again and again. And through a consistent biblical response over an extended period, you'll carve a a new way of natural response. And as a believer, you have the ability to do that by the Holy Spirit. Before Christ, you didn't have that. If you struggled in overcoming a a pattern or a sin or whatever it is, and you're unable to do that, you can't do that as an unbeliever. You don't have the power of the Holy Spirit there. But as a believer, you're empowered to put off the old and put on the, the new. You'll never overcome the impulses, the temptations of your flesh. They'll be there because you're on this side of, of heaven, but you can change your typical responses through developing godly habits empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what Paul is going to teach us about today. He started with right thinking in verse 8, 
And now he says those thoughts have to be put into action. The last week, uh, last week the Apostle Paul added biblical thinking to our list of commands that will bring spiritual steadiness in our Christian life. And, and he's going to round that out today with consistent doing, verse 9. If you want spiritual steadiness or balance in your soul, it comes from concrete choices and habitual obedience that creates godly responses. Verses 1 through 9 of Philippians 4 is the how to stand firm or, or what will bring spiritual stability in your life. And that kind of solid ground is only found in Christ. And once you come to Christ, then you must obey these, these nine commands that Paul provides here, which is why he begins with the command to stand firm in Philippians 4, verse, verse 1. He says, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then he makes a passionate plea for unity in verses 2 and 3. And then we saw he gives a four-part prescription for steadiness in verses 4 through 7. And finally, he rounds it out in verses 8 and 9 with thinking and, and doing. And when you put all those things together, you'll have steadiness in your Christian life. If you don't know that standing firm is your goal, then you'll never strive for it, which is why he, he starts with that first command. You're to stand firm in the Lord. You're to be steady and stable as, as believers. The, the unbelieving world is unthankful and it's unsteady. Believers are commanded to stand firm in the Lord. And then without unity in the church or with others, you're always going to be in turmoil over offenses or issues, and that's going to leave you unstable. Issue-driven people are always thrashing around in their dealings with, with others. The alternative to whatever you're, you're twisted over, you're disunified over, is to focus on the Lord, and that's, that's to rejoice in Him, which is the, the next command. I mean, if you don't find your happiness or, or blessing in God... You're not rejoicing in Him, and you're going to be tempted to look for happiness and satisfaction everywhere else, and it's a bottomless pit. It's going to leave you unstable. You're going to chase after this and chase after that and chase after this, and it's just going to keep doing that. And if you rejoice in the Lord, that will develop an even-keeled, gracious response of life that's a byproduct, spiritual calmness. If you lack that, then you're always in a state of correction. You're either high on the mountain or down in the valley. And you don't need to be either one of those ways because you, have, you can have confidence in God. The Lord is near, verse 5. He's near, so there's no reason for, for concern because your sovereign Father controls all things. And, and then respond in prayer whenever you're, you're tempted. That will bring steadiness to your soul. It will calm out the ripples of, of your anxious heart. But then beyond that, you have to think right and you have to do right. Thinking right about those areas will bring steadiness. And then the, this morning, Paul brings us to the final step in this list, and that's obedience. You can know uh, all those things and not do what God commands, and you'll remain unsteady, unstable. I mean, we all know far more than we obey, right? I mean, just Ten Commandments is exhibit A. We know those, and we don't always obey them. When we stand before the Lord, we'll not give an account only about how much we know, but how much we obeyed. And obedience requires both knowing and doing, but often the failure comes not in knowledge. I mean, we know the failure comes in moving into practice and then doing that on a consistent, on a consistent level. And so verses 8 and 9, Paul calls us to faith through clear thinking and consistent walking. Right thinking, regular doing are the foundation stones of a stable life. These two verses, in verses 8 and 9, 
are, are really just a really uh, one long sentence with, with two appeals. Think on these things and practice these things. And so we said that Paul gives us two concrete commands that produce a stable Christian walk. He says there's a pattern of heavenly thinking. That's what we covered last week. And then there's the practice of habitual doing. That's what we'll look at today. That's the foundation of a stable walk as you follow Christ. Well, we've already covered the the first one. The pattern of heavenly thinking brings mental stability. Today we're going to see the pattern of habitual doing brings practical spirituality. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Paul says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be, will be with you. And in that verse, he gives us a, a comprehensive explanation of what he wants us to imitate. That's what the sentence, you got four things up front. Then he issues this call to consistent practice, to practice these things. That's the, that's the imperative command there. And then he makes a promise, a corresponding presence. And the peace of God, or the God of peace, I should say, will, will be with you. A lot of instability in your soul can boil down to a lack of practical obedience. You ever come to a sermon and you listen to it and you find peace? You go, yeah, that's exactly what I need to understand. God, God spoke to my heart, as we would say. I, I, I hear that. I mean, that answered the, the question. But then you, you, you leave the sermon and nothing changes in your life and you're still stable. That's because you only got one side of the coin. You only got part of the, part of the equation. And you can look for methods or counselors or helpful messages. And it may just be as simple as you need to practice righteousness over and over. An obedient person is a stable person. And so Paul starts with a comprehensive explanation of of that modeled for us. What are we to obey? In verse 9, Paul does the same thing that he does in verse 8, where he front loads the the, the verse with with all of the the details. Like like in verse 8. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. He gives all these patterns of thinking, and then he says, meditate on those things. He does the same thing here. He front loads the, the verse. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So, and he, 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 he tells them what they're to continually practice up front. And notice it's always all past tense. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. These are markers that you're to use to put into practice. And then he gives the commands. Again, it's for emphasis. It's like when your mother said, you see that, and you see that, and you see that, and you see that, pick it up. I mean, it's the idea of pointing out to emphasize, to build. And the four verbs that he uses here of what you're supposed to to, to practice is, 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 is the model. And he switches pronouns. He goes from the indefinite, whatsoever things are, to, to the definite, the particular things that you've seen and heard and others. I mean, Paul is saying his teaching and way of life exemplify those things. What they've received and heard and seen are excellent and praiseworthy. Therefore, put them into practice. He's, it's like saying, think in these general categories, but do these specific things that you saw me do. And then he gives the specific things that you've learned and received and heard and saw in me. The first two have to do with Paul's teaching, what he communicated to them. And the second have to do with his example, what they heard and what they saw. 
heard about Paul and saw in Paul. This is really just an illustration of biblical discipleship. There's a lot of books out there, some of which are good and some of which are bad, but, but right here is a model for, for biblical discipleship. I mean, MacArthur said, think of it this way. If you were a Christian in Philippi, where did you go to figure out how to live? I mean, you've embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one to come. And, and, and you've bought into that. You, you, you've repented. You've believed on Jesus. But now what? what? How are you supposed to live? And maybe you were a Jew that's embraced the Messiah. Maybe you were a Gentile that never heard about any of this. And now you believe it. You heard the gospel and the power of God into salvation. God opened your heart and, and you've exercised saving faith. What now? Where would you go to figure out how to live? Well, you say, well, you go to the scriptures. I mean, that's what I do. But they only had the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament's not completed for another 30 years. And so you went to the apostles. God sent his messengers around. They learned from Jesus, and now they're models for, for everyone. And they laid the foundation of the church. They're, they're the, the transitional figures between the, the Old and the, the New Testament. John the Baptist is the prophetic voice that comes after no prophets for a long period of time to announce the promises of the Old Testament are here, the Messiah is going to come, and then after Jesus comes, the, John the Baptist reveals him, then Jesus trains a number of disciples, and then he hands the ball to them, if you will, and then the apostles lay the foundation of the church. They have signed gifts, they receive revelation, and they're living models. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. What did the book of Acts chapter 2 say when there were 3,000 souls added to the church after Peter preaches Pentecost? It says that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles taught them. The apostles ate with them. They lived around them. They spent time with them so they could see and so they could learn. May I say to you that's exactly the way that your Christian life ought to be? I mean, one of the reasons that you may, not, you may not be growing or that you may be struggling is you're not spending enough time with other believers because that's how you grow. I mean, you know the Bible, but you need other believers to see them put it into practice. That's exactly what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 means when it talks about provoking one another to, to love and good works. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's not just the go-to-church verse. There's a reason. It's part of the way God's designed Christian, Christian growth and Christian life. And you'll begin to model the people that, that you're around and the ones that you spend time with. Discipleship is living life with others, learning and hearing and seeing and doing. The Bible also says the opposite. A, a good company corrupts bad morals, so, you, so you'll learn from fools and scoffers as well if you hang around them. But Paul's ministry of discipleship is nothing more than an apostolic illustration of the mind of Christ, what we're called to imitate. He's the, he makes the Lord's servanthood visible. He puts flesh on the mind of Christ. And he calls them to imitate him. And he points out four areas that they've, they've observed already. And he starts with this first one, what you've, what you've learned. He says the things that you have learned. It's... It's the word uh, from mathetes, meaning a disciple, it's a learner. It means the personal discipleship that Paul had already done with the Philippians. In Acts 20.20, 20, the Apostle Paul said he not only taught believers publicly, what's underlined at the end of that verse, but he also went house to house. 
And so the Apostle Paul knows exactly what, what, he, what he means here. Discipleship is possessing Christ yourself and helping others follow the, follow the same. I mean, you say, let me show you how I followed Christ in this way, and by showing them, then they're encouraged to do the same. Discipleship is not a program. It's not a nine-week course. It's, it's not something only apostles or leaders do. Discipleship is like following your, your big brother's path that, that he cut in the, in the deep snow with, with his footsteps. You ever watch a, a child whenever snow gets really deep and it's going to go over their boots and somebody goes in front of them that's a little taller and steps in the snow and then they go through and, and step in the, in the same path? Discipleship's the same way. You step wherever brother stepped until you grow enough to be the big brother and cut the path yourself. It's telling someone what the Lord has taught you. And frankly, we overcomplicate it. I mean, has God taught you something? If you're a believer, I'm sure he has. I mean, maybe it even could have come through your sinful failure. Then you're perfect for this task. You simply find someone and share with them how to follow Christ like, like you did. Have you learned something through instruction? then be the illustration in the classroom. It's not your thing. It's not your wisdom. You're copying what you hear in Scripture, what you saw the apostles do, and you're putting that into practice. And they're following what what Jesus did. I mean, this is exactly what the Lord did with his disciples. I mean, Peter is fishing. um, Matthew is collecting taxes. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. And then he spends three years with them, and he taught them, and and he took them aside, and he instructed them, and and he showed them, and then he sent them out to practice whatever he taught them, and then he brought them back, and he went over what they did. I mean, this doesn't happen in in, in like a, a one teaching setting. I mean, this is a way of life. This is a following this is this is corrective. It's it's in, it, it's in, it's an encouragement. It's 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 teaching. It's learning. And they, he did that until they got to the place and that he could send them out on their own to replicate. I mean, the men who taught me the most about walking with God were the men who shared their life with me and allowed me to go along for the ride. The special gift that they gave me were their, was their present and transparent life. Paul says what you've learned. The second word, though, is what you have received. Paralambano, which is sometimes used for God's revelation. Paul says the things that you've learned and the things that you've received. Now, they clearly received the word of God from Paul, but that's not exactly what he means here. It's the same word that Paul uses for the Lord's Supper. You remember when we do the Lord's Supper every time? We read the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says, you know, what what the that we received from the Lord on the same night. It's the idea. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where the church received the words of, of God, received Scripture, not as words of men, but as it is in truth, the words of God. It's used in, in Colossians 2.67 as actually receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. It, the idea is not just hearing or knowing something, but, but taking it in. It's a reception. It's like the passing of the ball, and you now have, you now have it. It's in your grasp. And it's the way that they ought to walk. 
mean to live. It's not just scripture, it's the application of scriptural principles. It's a form of behavior. Look at how it's used in 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, what did they receive? How you ought to walk and please God. See, it's behavioral. Just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Look at how it's used in 2 Thessalonians. Here's the the negative. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. It's a pattern that has been marked out, modeled, and then you have it now to imitate. Paul is saying the patterns of practice that are faithful and helpful and and even applicational, you've received them from me. Practice those things. That's what Paul's saying. I mean, we all know that the Bible is clear about the do's and the don'ts. I mean, it specifically says things that are commanded and things that are prohibited. But the Bible is also filled with all kinds of principles, isn't it? And you have to apply those principles in life. And then those principles are turned into patterns. Whenever you, whenever you consistently apply that principle over and over, it turns into a pattern. And sometimes it's, that's harder than we want it to be. I mean, we want God to just give us the list. Do this and don't do that. And then, of course, we want to grade ourselves on a curve. I mean, you know, everybody does it. I'm not as bad as the next guy. We don't ever want to actually compare ourselves to, to the list. But God's too wise to give us lists and rules where we don't have to submit our wills and our minds, use our minds to think. And while we must apply biblical principles ourselves, those patterns of others applying them, they're helpful to, to know how to live out that truth. That's what Paul means. I mean, it's a comforting thing. It should be, you realize we're not the only Christians to try to figure out how to apply the Bible. I mean, there's non-negotiables. This is orthodoxy whenever the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. But the principles, we're not the first ones to try to do this, and we can learn from that. Let Let me illustrate it this way. If you have an older saint that that approaches prayer a certain way, let's say when they get up in the morning, it's not sin if you don't practice it the exact same way. You're commanded to pray. But let's say that older saint gets out their their um, uh, you know their their journal and they write down all their prayers and then they they you know they they write down the things that and maybe they pray through the Lord's prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, and hallowed be your name. So then they start with praising God, and, you know, um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, I want obedience today, and give me this day my daily bread. So then they pray. I mean, you're not in sin if you don't pray that exact way. But it gives you a reference point. And most of the time, I I have found that that's extremely helpful. I mean, tradition gets a bad rap. I mean, don't fall for the fiddler-on-the-roof approach. I mean, don't buy the attitude of some that, it, that if it's not new, then it's not good. Traditions are very helpful and very good. Or if you, you've done it more than once, it's bad. Paul says the, the exact opposite. You saw these patterns in me, and these patterns were principles that I put into practice. Do it like I did it until you figure out how to do it a better way. The problems with traditions is not, for, is not the tradition itself. It's forgetting, forgetting why you do them. 
But even that's better than no tradition at all. (laughs) Paul says, you receive the patterns from me, now practice them yourselves. Can you think of a tradition or something that you learned from another saint that's helped you walk more faithfully with Christ? Paul says, then take that and share it with someone else. Maybe it will help them. Traditions or patterns will teach you when you're too ignorant to know yourself, and they'll guard you when you're too arrogant to recognize that you need them. We'll look at the third word here. He says the things that you've learned in verse 9, the things that you've received, and then he says the things that you've heard. He covers what you heard from me and learned and received, but now he's talking here about the things that you've heard about me. Richard Baxter said, Study hard, for the well is deep and our brains are shallow. <laughs> and you must have information coming in from the outside because we're, we're limited. And so Paul says here, what you've heard. And it doesn't just mean what you heard me say. It's a broader, broader meaning. Uh, Paul's already uh, called them to follow what he taught them in the first two words. This word is, is what they heard about Paul. It's, it was like what was used back in Philippians 1.30. It says the Philippians heard this about Paul, how he engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They heard about how Paul weathered those trials in a godly way. And so Paul says here, apply those lessons to your own life. What you hear me doing, you hear me suffering in prison, go do the same thing. The things that you heard me speak and the things that you heard about me that match what I spoke do these things. I mean, I know you're encouraged whenever you hear the word of God proclaimed. But are you not motivated to live for Christ when you you hear about a, a missionary who's lived under hardship and still served Christ? I mean, or how a great reformer uh, stared down the barrel of the the Catholic gun and never flinched, even when they pulled the trigger with the flames and in death i mean paul says here about other saints and how they have they've modeled christ read about these types of men and women it'll motivate you and it'll also sketch out a pattern for for you to to follow it will help you image exactly how you're to obey one of the things that i do every year in vacation is i take a biography for from a missionary or someone in church history and i read about them and it amazes me how I, I learn the patterns of their life, and I say, wow, I want to emulate that. I want to do that. That's exactly what Paul's saying here, what you've heard about me, what you've heard about other Christians. Do the same thing. And if you're not doing that, then you may find that you lack stability. Well, look at the fourth word, the things you've learned and received and heard, and now he talks about the things that you saw, that you've seen in me. They didn't just hear stories about Paul. They watched him live it out. They observed his godly example. The, the word, the fourth and the, uh, the third and the fourth one here, the things that you heard and you've seen, there's a close connection. I mean, the Bible never disconnects being from, from doing. Paul told Timothy to keep close watch on both. Keeping close watch on yourself and your teaching. And he tells him why. You'll be able to save yourself and those who watch you. I mean, you may not have been raised in a Christian home where 
or maybe you, you weren't, in, weren't in church or weren't in a good church where, where you learned specific, you memorized specific things in Sunday school class. Maybe you didn't go through a Baptist catechism or, or, or learn Proverbs or anything else, but you saw plenty of godly people model Christianity for you, and you're accountable for that as well as the verses that you memorized. It's helpful. I mean, discipleship is not just information, it's transformation through a living application. I mean, discipleship is not telling people stuff, it's modeling them that stuff lived out, modeling for them. Appreciation for the truth is not application of the truth. Oh, I love the Bible, are you obeying the Bible? Think of discipleship like doctrine with feet on it. And we need visual images of doctrine in motion. That's what Paul says. You saw doctrine in motion. He's already covered this back in Philippians 2 when he gave us the model of himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. You probably remember that. God teaches through two primary methods. One is precept and the other is pattern. I mean, the Bible gives us material to learn and then it gives us models to follow. Here's the model. Paul says you saw the model. In Scripture, you find both information and imitation, imperatives and illustrations, commands and copies. God teaches through demands and disciples. And Timothy was a carbon copy of Paul. Paul was a carbon copy of Christ. And he's telling the Philippians, be a copy of a copy. And that's exactly what you should be. We rejoice in good Bible teaching. And that's a wonderful thing. But may I also say to you that good Bible living is also something to rejoice about or rejoice in. I mean, we give honor to good teachers who make the Word of God plain, and rightly so, but there are men and women in this congregation that you should rejoice over because they teach you right living. And they live it out in front of you, and they give you a model to follow. And they don't know how to put together a Sunday school lesson or deliver a sermon from the pulpit, but their faithful lives are a living sermon, and that's exactly the way that God designed it. You need both. Paul says, pay attention to those kind of people and model your life after them. And so now, after all these reminders of what he means, he gives the, he gives the command. Here's the consistent practice. It's a comprehensive explanation where he really explains what he means. And then he brings us to the command. Look at verse 9. All these things, he defines the things, and now he gives the, the command. Practice these things. Put them into practice. doesn't simply mean do it. It means to repeat it to where it becomes a pattern in your life. He's saying get out of your chair of contemplation and move to putting it into practice. When you hear the word practice, you should think of an, etern- of an attorney practicing law or, or a doctor practicing medicine. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not good at it, so they have to practice on you, although that sometimes is the case. It means that that's their profession. That's what they do every day. They practice medicine. They do it on a regular basis. And, of course, the longer that they, that they do it, the better that they get. It almost becomes instinctual. Sometimes that frustrates you because you walk in and you begin to you want to tell them your whole story for 15 or 20 minutes, and they've already sized you up. They've seen it the same thing 100 times, and they know exactly what to write you, and you're out of there in 15 minutes, which is my preference. <laughs> 
Paul says what will bring spiritual steadiness in your life is making a lifelong habit out of obeying God and walking with Him in the way that Paul just described. It's one thing to take a class on evangelism. It's another thing to witness to somebody, right? You don't own something until you practice it. I think too many Christians have the idea that Christianity is more like a contemplative event rather than a consistent exercise. You think rather than you do. You get saved rather than become a follower. You do something rather than practice something. And when you think of the Christian life like an an event or a single act or something that you did, then you're going to be sorely disappointed whenever it becomes comes to overcoming sin or or, or growing. I mean, you're you're set up for failure that way. You, when you don't understand that maturity comes through practice, you, you'll you'll expect instant sanctification from a single act of obedience. You'll expect to sit under a sermon and be convicted about something and maybe even pray about it in your seat or go to the prayer room. or Maybe you're so moved by it, you come forward and you pray up here and when you get up, you'll expect it to be fixed and that's not how it works in the Bible. The conviction is necessary. That changes your mind about your behavior, what's right and wrong, but then you have to go obey. And that's when the transformation happens. And we're hoping for it that way. It's instant results. Whenever the Bible doesn't say that at all. You ready? Here's a very good nugget. You obey in a moment, but you overcome in a lifetime. You say yes to Jesus in a second, but then you walk with him the rest of the day and the rest of the week and the rest of your life. And the more you do that over and over and over, the easier it gets. It's the consistently obedient life that grows in Christ and overcomes sin. You put the word into practice, and you practice it, and you do it over and over, and after a period of time, it bears fruit. But sadly, people don't even start that process. They think it's only hearing or thinking, not practicing, and sadly, some give up before the fruit comes, which is why the Bible tells you in James Don't grow weary in well what? Doing. And it tells you that you will reap if you faint not. If you don't give up. Meaning give up the pattern before the fruit comes. Richard Baxter again. Let no man think to kill sin with a few easy gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent... If he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. (laughs) And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death will feel the same. Now, if you're struggling with some weakness or habitual sin, that may seem discouraging to you, but it's actually the most encouraging thing that you can grab a hold of. Because when you think that overcoming sin or you think the Christian life is like a single act or an event, then you're going to think that God overpromises and underdelivers. I mean, I did what God told me to do and nothing happened. And so you'll spend all your energy on seeking that kind of sanctification or an event rather than putting effort toward the work that brings real results. Christianity plays the long game. And maturity comes through practicing Righteousness. That's exactly what Hebrews 5 says. You know, the, the passage about uh, you need to be on solid 
milk, a meat rather than milk. It's the maturity passage. Look at what it says here. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do you develop discernment? By constant practice. You train yourself. How do you train yourself? You follow the patterns over and over. Where do you find the patterns? Other believers that have walked before you, in front of you, where did they get their pattern? From the scriptures, from Christ. The apostles wrote all of that down, and we now have a completed New Testament, so we can go to the scriptures and see what that is. Practice or reason here in Hebrews means a habit. They practice the word of God and train their senses to discern. And that means you do it and you get a little more and you do it again and then you learn it to where it becomes a part of you and it's, it's ready knowledge. A spiritual adult, Hebrews says, is someone who's worked out over time and ingrained maturity that makes them spiritually sensitive so they can discern good and evil. It's natural to think spiritually for this kind of person, just like sin was once natural. That's what Paul means here. He told Timothy the same thing. Practice these things, immerse yourselves in them in 1 Timothy 4. He says, let your progress and this kind of growth be evident before all. It should be public. And that progress will come from putting into practice the the characteristics that he starts the passage with. You know, the passage about uh, let no man despise your youth. You know, the passage that, that young people use at, at time, thrumping their chest, and they say to old people, you know, um, you're not supposed to despise my youth. But that's not what the passage means at all. Look at what it says, or listen to what it says. Let no one despise your youth, but <laughs> set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in, in purity. It says, have such a spiritual pattern in these things in your life that while your youth is a detriment this maturity will, will overcome that. They'll go, oh, wow, this person may be young in the faith or young chronologically, but, but they're wiser beyond their years because they have such godly character and conduct. Practice what you've learned. Practice what you've received. Practice what you've heard. Practice what you've observed. Practiced. That's what Paul says. And then there's a promise, and God will be with you. Look at the end of verse 9. The things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's the corresponding presence. Paul's already said in verse 7, if you respond to anxious circumstances in thankful prayer, the peace of God will be yours. You'll have the peace of God. But notice this time, it's not the peace of God, it's the God of peace. He ups the ante. And in these two verses, Paul's describing the, the character and the activity of our great God. He is peace and he brings peace. And Paul is saying God is both the source and the giver of all true blessings. And when you follow him, and you follow him closely, and you develop these patterns in your life, then he will be with you. One of the greatest statements that God ever made in the, the Old Testament to Israel, greatest blessings... It's found in several places, but it's crystallized in Jeremiah 32, 38. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's the promise of God's presence. The God of peace will be with you. Did you know that's exactly how the Bible ends as well? Revelation 21, 3. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Literal presence there. Spiritual presence right now. And until that day, God promises the same thing to anyone who will come to him through Jesus Christ and follow all that he teaches. The God of peace will be with you. Spiritual steadiness comes from a commitment to stand. It's not just osmosis. When you plant your feet in Christ, it comes from pursuing unity. It comes from finding joy in God, rejoice in the Lord. It comes from a contented response to life. Let your gentleness be known. It comes from confidence in God. Don't be anxious. Be confident in God. If you're worried, offer thankful prayer. And then heavenly thinking and habitual doing. Do you have that kind of stability? The content of your life is the Bible. The character of your life is Christ. The confirmation of all of that is change that happens over and over. It may be small, but growth is happening. Many of you have said that the book of Philippians has been a very helpful book to you. And that encourages my soul. But let me ask you a pointed question. As we've been going over Philippians, maybe even just these sermons on, on spiritual steadiness, what has actually changed in your life? What choices have you made after listening to these sermons about spiritual steadiness in your soul? What ways have you changed in the way that, that, that you live? I mean, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. That's when the rubber meets the road. Because if you're listening and thinking good sermons and there's no transformation, there's no change, there's no practice, then then it's not having the effect that God intends. You're missing the point. In fact, James says, the verse that we all know, you're deceiving yourself, being hearers and not doers. Tracy told me about a little child who came over to her house last week and they played downstairs in our basement and they saw my bear and my deer mounts that were, that were down there. And when they were leaving, they said, next time I come back, could you get rid of the dead things? <laughs> God is saying the same thing to his church this morning. Can you get rid of the dead things? The stuffed Christians that don't move, that don't change, that don't grow. I mean, the very essence of being saved is that you have spiritual life. And whatever is alive grows. So if there's no growing, then there's no life. And that can be because you're deceived or because there's no life to begin there, to begin with. And the way that you change both of those is with a commitment to get rid of the dead things. And then you come to the living Savior, and he'll transform your life. And then you go do exactly what you know to do. Won't you bow your heads? Father, as I come before you this morning, I am so thankful for this list and this study. So helpful. But I pray, Lord, that while I'm encouraged and I've learned, uh, you would help all of us to put into practice these things. 
And I pray, Father, for anyone who's listening and they're looking at their life and they're saying there are things that don't match Christ. Or they're looking at their life and they say there's no growth. And maybe this morning you're revealing to them that they don't have spiritual life and they need to come to you to begin with and be saved. That will happen in an instant, in a moment, and then you'll give them the Holy Spirit of God. But then after that, they will continue to follow. So I pray for them and and all of us here, believers, that we would not grow weary in well-doing. We would learn these practices. We would would get in close to other believers who seem stable. We might just walk in their wake and learn. Thank you that we have such godly examples in this church and from history, and even from the Bible. Thank you that you are the ultimate example. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in your name. Amen.